welcome to the UNT BSM audio resources. If you want more information on the BSM, you can go to untbsm.com. Thanks for listening. Well, it's 12 o'clock. Do so you guys want to get started? Yes? You don't have to. If you don't, if you don't want to, we can. We'll get started. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises that we find in it. Thank you for uh, the bigger themes and things that we learn about your heart for us and your heart for the whole world. God, I pray that our time together in your word would uh, lift our eyes up to, to see such big things about you and, and to be humbled by your love for us, by your grace for us, by your purposes for every nation in the whole world to glorify you. God, I pray that you would bless our time together in the reading of your word to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 13. We're continuing our uh, jaunt through the book of Isaiah. And I know that we're going really fast, but that's just kind of how this works. This is more meant to just be an overview for you and kind of help you learn how to read this on your own. Because one of the great things, especially about a book like Isaiah, that is so poetic in its nature, you know, when you see it and you can see the lines that are like indented, that means that uh, they're trying to reflect the fact that this is poetry, um, that that you can just mine so much. You can look at individual verses and uh, and lines and just think through so much. And so there's, believe me, it's really hard to read this myself and not try and tell you all the cool little details and things that you can see in this. But we just, you know, we're trying to get the bigger themes. And one of the things that we said that overall, the first uh, 37 chapters of Isaiah form one big unit. That Isaiah is divided into three units. And they're all dealing ultimately with the idea of this Messiah figure. Okay, And so the first section that we're in is this section dealing with this idea of the, the Messiah is the king. And it's dealing a lot with the themes of kingship. And we saw that a lot last week too. And the way that Isaiah is going to sort of talk about this idea of, of king is through certain symbols. And so we saw, um, like last time, that he talked about Jerusalem or Zion quite a bit. And Jerusalem is indicative, is representative of the king. And so anytime he's talking about Jerusalem, you're supposed to think about this, this idea of the king. And, and then we've seen the, the actual king of Israel, Ahaz or Hezekiah or, or Uzziah, any of these kings kind of being as this stand-in, as this future hope, of a better king there. But then we also see um, Isaiah talking about David and referencing the house of David or the tent of David and these different things, again, as a stand-in for that. But then most of all, we see uh, God as, as the true king, the king sitting on this heavenly throne that's ruling over all of the other nations. And it's all meant as we're looking at this idea of David and Jerusalem, the city that the heavenly king has founded. It's meant to push us forward into this vision of this, this divine king and this earthly king and David coming together as one in the form of Jesus Christ. We know to be Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, later. And that's what we saw in my chapter 9. There's this vision of a son that will be born, that will call mighty God, and the government will be on his th- shoulders as he rules over the house of David. And so there's this king motif that runs through the whole thing. And that's right where we're in the middle of this. But, but it goes beyond that, because last week we saw a couple of things. Um, that are, that are going to be really important what we saw today. We saw in chapter 10, God's talking about Assyria 
And then uh, that uh, God is going to use Assyria to conquer and to, and punish His people, okay, for their sins. He's He's going to um, carry out the curses against them that Moses talked about in the book of Deuteronomy. He's going to use Assyria. But what we saw was that Assyria thinks they're doing it. Assyria thinks that they're really powerful. Assyria thinks that they're the ones that are in charge. But we saw in chapter ten that God calls Assyria the axe that He's chopping down trees with. Okay, And remember he says, should the axe boast over the one who wields it? No, you are just my tool, Assyria, that I'm going to use to accomplish my purposes. So even though this pagan foreign country thinks that they're awesome, we look back and we see that heavenly king is in charge of everything. And that idea is going to really play out in this section that we're in today. Okay, Because we're going to talk about a lot of other nations and that same idea, that same view of history, that God is in charge of all the nations, all of history, that's going to really play in today. Another thing that we saw, though, was that even though God is going to carry out a lot of punishment, and I know this, these first 37 chapters of Isaiah can be kind of a downer. Reading prophets sometimes can be sort of a downer because they're coming in and they're calling out people for their unfaithfulness to the covenant, right? And the unfaithfulness deserves curses. And so you can read these and it can, and it can kind of feel like you're, you're getting down. I promise the back half of Isaiah after chapter 37 are much more overtly gracious. But even for all of the talk about destruction and punishment that we've seen so far, there's always been this little fringe of grace, hasn't there? There's always been this little inkling of hope and redemption and restoration and, and grace, that even there, and we're going to see that again today. So that for all of God's judgment against Judah, he says, I'm going to reserve a remnant for myself. I'm going to save a remnant of my people, and I'm going to bring them back in. I'm going to establish them. They're going to be the stump that the, that the, the shoot comes out of, and I'm going to prosper them again. So we're going to see this idea of a remnant. But then also, we saw this just really briefly last, last week, that even though God has these plans for Judah, it extends beyond Judah. It goes beyond Israel, and he's got this plan for all of the nations, okay? That, that he's going to raise a signal and bring all of the nations in, and they're all going to worship God. That's going to be what we're really focusing on today, because what we're getting into today, chapters 13, really through, geez, I think about chapter 27, are going to be a succession of different oracles that Isaiah is giving to different nations, to different people. And we're only going to, we're going to try and get through five of them today, because there's ten altogether. But we're going to try and get through the first five today. And Isaiah is, it's kind of, remember we said that Isaiah is not chronological at all. He's just grabbing and he's putting things together sort of according to themes. And so throughout his ministry, he made these prophecies against different nations. And now we're kind of in a section where he's, combined all of those different prophecies about different nations and he's talking about what God's purpose is, what God's plan is for those nations, just like what God's plan was for Assyria and and what he's going to do. And and these first five, he's going to call each one of them out by name, so it's kind of easy for us. But there's bigger themes in that because not only is Isaiah talking to these nations, and I don't know, I don't know how that prophecy would have gotten to those nations. Although we do see in like Kings that sometimes other nations would come and, and inquire of Israel's prophets because they know that Israel has these prophets that hear from God. And so sometimes the nations would come in. But maybe maybe Israel would like go publish these you know, out and everybody in these other nations would know about it. I don't know. But, but more importantly, what I had to think is Isaiah is making these prophecies about other nations. And who's listening in? But Israel. But Judah. So Isaiah is making these prophecies about these other guys and Judah's hearing them. So whether or not these other nations hear it, we don't know. But Judah certainly is because Isaiah is 
in Judah. And so they're hearing these things that God's saying about these other nations, and it's meant to be instructive for them. So the things that God is saying he's going to do because of certain sins or whatever, it's supposed to, but it's also supposed to be a hope for them. Because remember, at this time, there's a lot of fighting. There's a lot of empires rising up, and there's a lot of wars, and there's a lot of armies. And so, I, so Israel, Judah, is concerned But this is supposed to give them hope. Hey, look, just like I said about Assyria, here's what's going on with all these other guys. Does that make sense? So we're going to go through these. And again, we can't talk about every cool thing that's in them, but we're going to go through. So starting in chapter 13, look at the very first part, verse 1. This says, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Now we know because we read the rest of the Old Testament history that even though Assyria is a big power right now and Assyria is going to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, Assyria ultimately doesn't defeat the southern kingdom of Judah. It's Babylon, isn't it? That Babylon ultimately is the power that God uses to conquer Judah and to take the Jews into exile. That Babylon is really the bad, bad guys. Okay? Even though last week they're, they're not so much of a threat, even Ahaz thinks he might get some help from Babylon. We know that ultimately Babylon is going to be the ones that conquer them. But this is Isaiah's prophecy concerning Babylon. Babylon uh, took Israel into captivity in 598 BC. Isaiah is writing this sometime in between 740 and 687. So this is maybe 100 to 150 years before Babylon even comes close to conquering Judah. So this is all Isaiah prophesying future telling. But it's more than that, that after Israel, after Judah was in exile in Babylon, only for 70 years, Babylon gets conquered by the Medes, by the Medo-Persians. Okay? So we've got all of that in our mind. That's all future for, for Isaiah. So he says this, On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, and wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. So God, this is the prophecy against Babylon. I, God is saying, I'm raising my hand and I'm calling, in some, I'm calling in some consecrated mighty men that I've set apart some other strong men and I'm bringing them in to come and fight against Babylon. Okay? So he says... Here, the sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. And they come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail. For the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt, and they will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor, and they will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes. So remember, the very beginning, this is an oracle concerning who? Babylon. Okay, this is about the nation of Babylon. And this has this vision of God raising up an army of his consecrated mighty men that we know are the Medo-Persians that are going to come in and they're going to destroy Babylon. And it's going to be terrible. But then look in verse 9, he says, the day of the Lord comes. Usually when you hear the day of the Lord, what you're supposed to think about, and this is being developed at the time that Isaiah and then Amos is another prophet, as they're writing that this is supposed to make you think about the very, very end 
Okay, the day of the Lord, usually what we think about, and especially in the New Testament, is referring to the end, when Jesus comes back. It's referring to the time when God comes to, to finally conquer the whole earth and put every enemy under his subjection and to bring in, we, were, we are in this present evil age, there's going to be an age to come, a new heavens and a new earth, and right in between those two is the day of the Lord. That's the, bat, that's the day of judgment. That's when everything comes down. Okay, You get what I'm talking about? So we're looking at the end. So Isaiah is kind of seeing two things at the same time. Because not only is there the day of the Lord, but then there's other days of the Lord that are sort of a prefiguring a picture of that. And so he's talking about the destruction of Babylon is going to be so serious that it's a prefiguring of that time when Jesus finally comes back and conquers everybody. You get what and so in that time, God is going to muster his mighty ones, which are going to be angels that carry out this wrath. And he's going to be these hosts, and we're going to be the hosts. We're going to be the armies that are going to go and conquer all of our enemies in that day. But in this day, he says it. But look what he says. So he says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. So you kind of hear the end times language in that as well. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. And I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. A lot of that language, the moon, the sun not shedding its light, things changing like that. A lot of that language makes its way into uh, New Testament eschatological end times kind of talking stuff. So this is kind of that. But it also means that there's a big shift in power is what that kind of means. There's a big shift when empires fall and they describe it. And it's such a big deal that like the stars rearrange themselves because these world powers are changing. Okay. So it says, I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. You see, the pomp of the arrogant, the pompous pride of the ruthless. Babylon has always been known for their pride. You go all the way back to Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. Okay? Genesis 10. The Tower of Babel is Babylon. And the whole reason that they did that was said, Hey, let's make a tower for ourselves and make a name for ourselves. Okay? So from the very beginning, Babylon has been known for their pride. And God says, I'm bringing your pride down. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And like a hunted gazelle or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them. Again, this is incredible. This is like 200 years before this happens. Isaiah is prophesying this. Okay? I am stirring up the Medes against them, that is Babylon, who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. And they will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited. Or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there. And their houses will be full of howling creatures. And their ostrich, their ostriches will dwell. And their wild goats will dance. 
Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant palaces. Its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. Let me ask you this. Is Babylon still on your map? When you look, can you go look at the nation of Babylon on your map? No. Did God do exactly what he said he would do? One of the greatest powers in history, where are they? God brought them down because of their pride, because of their arrogance. But not just that, okay? Why did God bring about all of this judgment against Babylon? Ultimately, we're going to see at the start of chapter 14. Because Babylon messed with the Jews. Babylon messed with God's people. And look what he says. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land. And sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. And they will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. That God will not forget his promises to his people. So even though he's got judgment against them that he's going to carry out through Babylon, because Babylon's heart was, we want to conquer the Lord's people, God says, uh-uh. Okay? You're just the tool that I'm using, and I hate you for your arrogant pride against my own people. And so God is going to rescue them. He's going to use another nation to restore Israel back to their land. We saw all of that in the end uh, of last semester in Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, that Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, restores Israel back, restores the Jews back to their land. And God says, I'm not going to let total destruction befall my people. And anybody that messes with my people is going to get it from me. And that's hope for us, guys, because you know what? Now we are God's people. We are part, we have this same promise that Jacob has. Okay? Jacob being Israel. Okay? That we are in this community. And there's hope. But then you also see even in that, that the nation's sojourners are going to attach themselves to Israel. Okay? That people that aren't Israel are going to attach themselves to Israel and they're going to be part of Israel. So even though there's a little glimpse, okay? So this is that hope that Israel has that even though it may get bad from Babylon, that God won't forget them. So then we get into this really cool part. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain, he's talking to Judah. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve when they're exiles in Babylon, he says, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. So he's saying, this is the song that you will sing while you're in exile in Babylon. So think about this. Think about how annoying this would be for the Babylonians because they've just conquered these guys. And, and Isaiah had 200 years earlier it says, hey, here's a song that you'll sing when you're in exile. And listen to this song. How the oppressor has ceased and the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows that ruled the nations in anger. With unrelenting persecution, the whole earth is at rest and quiet, and they break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you, and the cedars of Lebanon saying, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you, and all who are leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones. All who are kings of the nations, all of them will answer and say to you, You too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps, Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. He gives this picture of what's happening in the grave when all of these other kings that had come before the king of Babylon 
wake up to greet the king of Babylon when he comes into Sheol, into the grave with them, to sleep on maggots. There's this vision, okay? They're singing this song that the king of Babylon is going to be killed and Israel is going to be set free. Isn't that, isn't that awesome? Okay? And that's, this is instructive for us too because we have a future hope that God will defeat all of our enemies. That's what this translates into. And so we are supposed to sing songs to ourselves about future hope. We are supposed to sing songs that no matter how bad it gets right now, no matter how much toil, no matter how much we are made to, to suffer, we have a future hope. That God will conquer all of our enemies. Look at verse 12. This is still that song continuing. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, and I will set my throne on high, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That section, how you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. That is a glimpse into what the king of Babylon's heart was. Okay, but it's also got this really interesting parallel. That this is kind of has some mythology, some Canaanite mythology that Isaiah is referencing. Okay, because there was a story about a god in their culture that was called the day star. Okay, or the, the morning star. And the morning star, uh, who's also called Ishtar, or Halal, he was this god, and, and there's this mythology that Ishtar thought he was so great that he was going to kind of enact a coup, a rebellion against all of the other gods in the pantheon, that he was going to become higher than all of the other gods, and his coup fails, and he falls from grace, he's, he's disgraced, okay? And so Isaiah's kind of comparing the king of Babylon to that, and saying, you thought you were so great that you were going to set yourself above all of the gods, and really above the one true god, but you have fallen from heaven, you are disgraced. But even more, again, Isaiah doesn't even necessarily know all that he's writing down right now because this is also a picture of the devil. This also gives us a picture of Satan, who was an angel, okay, and in heaven and thought himself more glorious and tried to enact a rebellion against God. And God cast him out of heaven, okay, and says, Oh, how you have fallen, O day star, son of the dawn, because you thought you were so glorious, but then look at Verse 15, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you, this is kind of picturing a funeral. Those who see your dead body will stare at you and ponder over you and say, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let its prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pit, like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land, you have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers never more be named, prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities." I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord. And I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. Does your section now say an oracle concerning Assyria at the top of that? Okay. Really... 
This part right here is just a continuation of everything that God has just said. Okay? He's saying, I'm going to destroy Babylon. And he's given his people this hope. Hey, sing songs about how Babylon's going down. Even when they're your conquerors, you can sing songs about how they're not going to last forever. But God will. And his people will. That's kind of the theme there. But he says, that's all future stuff. That's 200 years away. And so remember we talked about that. Isaiah is going to scatter in with these really long-term visions. These intermediate prophecies. These things that will happen in a much shorter period of time. And this is one of those... That's going to talk about what's going to happen to Assyria as a sure fulfillment of what's going to happen to Babylon. So he says, the Lord of hosts has sworn. Do I hear that? Okay. As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. That I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains trample him underfoot and his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? So do you hear that language? He's Lord over all the nations. He's got this under his control and as he's purposed, so it will happen. So he's saying, first... To let you know that I'm going to conquer Babylon, who you can't even understand is going to be such a big world power, right? I'm going to promise that I'm going to conquer the current world power, that is Assyria. So he's saying, I promise you that I will conquer Assyria, which he does in 607 BC. So a shorter term fulfillment. So everybody will see, oh my gosh, Assyria was conquered. And we never thought that that could possibly happen. So how much more can we have hope when we're in exile in Babylon that God will also conquer Babylon? And it ends up that Babylon is the one that conquered Assyria, which is kind of interesting. But he said, look, as sure as you saw that Assyria fell, despite all likelihood, I promise you that Babylon, even though it seems like it's forever, is going to also fall. Again, this is good news for us. Okay? I don't know what you've got going on right now, but it probably doesn't compare to fighting against one of the greatest world empires in human history. And if God can conquer Babylon... He can take care of your class that's not going the way that you thought it would. He can take care of whatever's going on in your family. He can take care of whatever money problems you may have or whatever relationship problems you may have. Okay, That none of these things compare with the power of our God. God is the God of nations. How much more your life? Okay, That's kind of the idea here. So that's the end of the oracle concerning Babylon. Now we're going to get into an oracle concerning Philistia. Okay, the Philistines, who are right like next-door neighbors to Judah. And this one's really short, and it's just got one big idea. So in verse 28, Isaiah dates this one. And isn't this interesting? He says, it's in the year that King Ahaz died. Remember in chapter 6, it starts with the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah had a son, Jotham, who took over when King Uzziah died. Well, when Jotham died, Ahaz took over. And we saw a lot dealt with Ahaz last time, didn't it? Ahaz was, for all intents and purposes, the, the beginning of the end for Judah. Because he, instead of putting his trust in God, put his trust in, remember, the Assyrians. Okay, he put his trust in the Assyrians because the Assyrians and Israel were trying to fight against him. And in doing so, he kind of made Judah a puppet state for Assyria. So he, he kind of gave up all of the glory and the power and the independence that the Davidic kingdom had. He sort of handed that over to the Assyrians. So he, he kind of blew it, right? And, and this is the year that Ahaz died. And we're going to deal a lot with Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, later in Isaiah. Hezekiah is a good king. Okay, but Ahaz, Ahaz really blows it. But Ahaz dies. 
in the ancient world, whenever it's kind of, you know, think about how much upheaval we're going through just trying to pick a president, right? And there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of people, man, when things, you know, if we can get a, get a different guy in charge, then, then we can change a lot of things. You know, even us in a democracy, we have hope for a lot of upheaval and change with the change of a president. For them, whenever a king, a monarch died, it was like all hell broke loose. Okay, because the next guy had to step in and solidify, re-solidify all this power. And at the same time, all of these other nations see that as the opportunity to try and get, uh, get back at these nations or rebel against these nations or take advantage of these nations. And so when Ahaz dies, Philistia is like, here's our opportunity. And so they start bragging against Judah. They start getting proud about how they're better than Judah. And what they actually want to do is they're like, uh-oh, what are you going to do now? Ahaz died. You guys are in trouble. You need to partner with us. Okay? Because this thing with Assyria, that didn't work out. But you, you partner with us, and they're gonna, we're going to find out. And we're partnered with Egypt. Like, you guys get with us. We'll take care of you. Okay? Because you're nobodies. You're nothing. That's sort of the idea. And so this is Isaiah responding to the Philistines. Okay, in the year that King Ahaz died. Look at verse 29. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. And the firstborn of the poor will graze, and the needy lie down in safety. But I will kill your root with famine, and your remnant it will slay. Wail, O gate, cry out, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you, for smoke comes out of the north, and there is no straggler in his ranks. This is one of those examples where there's so much cool stuff that I can't even talk to you about. There's a lot of neat parallels to the Exodus in this. You remember Moses had a rod that turned into a snake? Okay. Don't rejoice that the rod that struck you is broken for from the serpent's root. Well, okay, so there's a lot in there. Go home and study it. It's awesome. But the point is, he's like, hey, don't, don't brag, Philistia, because there's going to be smoke. When he says smoke coming from the north, what he means is like the dust that an army kicks up. And that an army coming from the north is Assyria. He's saying, don't rejoice, Philistia, because it's coming for you too. But look at this last part. What will one answer the messengers of the nations? So what is Judah supposed to say when Philistia comes and brags against them and says, hey, you better put your trust in us. Because you're nobody. What will one answer the messengers of the nations? The Lord has founded Zion. And in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. So the big idea there is no matter what's going on, find your refuge in the Lord. The Lord has founded Zion. The king in Zion is king because God is king. Okay? If you take refuge in God's king, you have refuge. No matter how poor you are, no matter how afflicted you are. You can take refuge in the Lord. But if you take refuge in anything else, there's a storm coming. Verse 15. This is the next next oracle. This is an oracle concerning Moab. Moab was another sort of neighbor of Judah. Moab was getting their butts kicked by the Assyrians. Okay, You see this? The Assyrians are really screwing everything up, aren't they? Moab is getting their butt kicked by the Assyrians. And this is what the first uh, about nine verses is just talking about how bad they're getting beat up by the Assyrians. And it's going to talk about a lot of cities. All of these are Moabite cities. Okay? And I hope I can pronounce them respectably. It says, Because Ar of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. Because Kir of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. He has gone up to the temple and to Debon, to the high places, to weep 
Over Nebo and over Mediba and Moab wails. On every head is baldness, every beard is shorn. In the streets they wear sackcloth, and on the housetops and in the squares everyone wails and melts in tears. Heshbon and Elielah cry out, their voice is heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore the armed men of Moab cry aloud, his soul trembles. But look at this, this is so interesting in verse 5. It says, my heart. Who do you think's heart that is? My heart. If you were reading this, who would you think that is? I'm not going to answer for you, so somebody has to say. My heart. Venture a guess. What do you think, Chuck? Isaiah. Okay, could be Isaiah. And who is Isaiah speaking on behalf of? On behalf of the Lord. On behalf of the Lord. This is the Lord talking. Now. So he's just talked about how bad Moab is getting beat up. The Moab is undone. And then God says, my heart cries out for Moab. God sees all this destruction. The destruction that God has decreed. That he's carrying out judgment against Moab. But his heart cries out for them. He's grieved. He doesn't. And this is Moab is a, is a not Israel. Okay. Moab is related to Abraham sort of. Okay. But. But. Moab is, is a, a Gentile nation. But God's heart goes out for them because they're suffering. Isn't that interesting? And even though they don't necessarily know him, they don't worship him. God doesn't delight in suffering. God wishes that everyone would, would turn and have repentance. Okay? And believe in him. So my heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives flee to Zoar, to Eglath Shelashia. For at the ascent of Luhith, they go up weeping on the road to Horonaim. They raise a cry of destruction, and the waters of Nimrim are a desolation. The grass is withered, the vegetation fails, the greenery is no more. Therefore, the abundance that they have gained and what they have laid up, they carry away over the brook of the willows. For a cry has gone around the land of Moab, and her wailing reaches to Eglaim, and her wailing reaches to Bir Elim. For the waters of Debon are full of blood. For I, again this is God talking, I will bring upon Debon even more. A lion for those of Moab who escape for the remnant of the land. Isn't that crazy? That there's this destruction that they deserve, but God weeps for it. So for all of this destruction, now in verse in chapter 16, verse 1, we get a shift, okay? It's kind of like you can think that, that God has sort of given us, you know, this picture of just all the bad stuff that's happening like in a movie and then cut scene, and it cuts to the leaders of Moab. Okay, so verse 1 starts with the leaders of Moab, and they're trying to come up with some plan to save themselves because things are getting so bad. And so this is their plan, as they are going to ask the king of Judah for help. They're in such a bad way, and they know that the king of Judah is, is known for being a loving king. That's the reputation that they've had. We saw that in Second Kings. For all their failures, they were known to be a compassionate, loving king. And so they said, let's go to the king of Judah. Let's send tribute to him and see if he'll rescue us. Okay? If we can, if we can, find, if we can find refuge in him. Okay? So look at verse 1. It says, send the lamb to the ruler of the land. That is to Judah. Although he doesn't say to the king of Judah. Because that would be admitting a little bit too much. So they say, like night at the height of noon, and shelter the outcasts. Do not reveal the fugitive, but let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you, and be a shelter to them from the destroyer. So they turn to Judah, and I think this is a beautiful picture of 
all of us that we can turn to Zion, we can turn to the king of Judah, and all of us come and say, look, I'm nothing. I'm broken. I'm beat up. I'm harassed. I come to you. Please accept me. Please be my refuge. Please be my help. Be shade to me as in the heat of noon. We are all, everyone, are like beat up Moabites wandering around trying to find shelter in the shade of Jesus. And that's how they come. But then it shifts again, and now we hear the response. Okay, so they've come and they've asked Judah for help, but here's the response. Okay, that God says, when the oppressor is no more, okay, when the Assyrians are out of the way, Moab, and you've, you, you've come to attach yourself to Judah, and when the destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, God says, then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and who is swift to do righteousness. Now we read that and that's such good news. I mean, look back at that. So God says when, the, when all of the enemies have been conquered, a throne is going to be established in steadfast love and an unending covenantal kind of love. And there's going to sit on it in faithfulness someone from the tent of David. Who's going to judge and seek justice and be swift to do righteousness. That there's going to be a king that we're going to put up on this throne. That's going to rule in Zion. That's going to rule over everybody. And he's going to be a loving king. He's going to be a faithful king. He's going to be a righteous king. He's going to be a just king. But you have to submit to that king, Moab. That's what they're saying. If you want to come in and you want to find shelter in Judah. You have to submit to this throne of David. To Jesus. To the one that's coming. And we can tell from the context of these next few verses that Moab rejects that offer. That Moab would say, hey, if you would just let us be ourselves and rule and, and, and be safe here with you, great. If we can have the perks of being in your land, we want it. But if you're saying that we have to submit our whole lives to the, king of, to the, to the son of David, we can't make that deal. No deal. We're not willing to give up ourselves to submit to the son of David. We won't do it. And so they reject the offer. We're going to see it's because they're, they're so proud that they cannot give up their autonomy. They cannot give up their standing. They cannot bring themselves to that point of submitting to another king. And I think this stands in the way of a lot of us accepting faith in Jesus. Okay, This stands in the way of a lot of us saying, you know, if God would just give me all the good stuff, I'd take that. If Jesus could just be my Savior, I'd take that. But if you're saying He also has to be my Lord, if I have to submit my life to Him and let Him rule over me, no deal. So it says, verse 6, We've heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is, of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence, and his idle boasting, he is not right. Therefore let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail, mourn, utterly stricken, for the raisin cakes of Kir Haraseth, for the fields of Heshbon languish, and the vine of Sibma. The lords of the nations have struck down its branches, which reached to Jazer and strayed to the desert. Its shoots spread abroad and passed over the sea. Therefore I, this is God talking again, therefore I weep with the weeping of Jazer, for the vine of Sibma. I drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Eliola, for your summer fruit and your harvest, the shout has ceased. 
And joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field, and in the vineyard no songs are sung, no cheers are raised, no treader treads out wine in the presses. I have put an end to the shouting. Therefore my inner parts moan like a lyre for Moab, and my inmost self for Kir Hereseth. And when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself in the high place, when he comes to his sanctuary to, pr- to pray, he will not prevail. This is the word that the Lord spoke concerning Moab in the past. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, In three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt. In spite of all his great multitude and those who remain will be very few and feeble. So you can see that something, they, they for some reason didn't find their refuge in Judah, because they could have, but because they rejected that offer of that son of David, He says, then let Moab wail for Moab. You've brought this on your own head. But even still, God grieves for them. But he says, and I tell you, in three years, like the years of a hired servant, it's a really cool phrase. If if I've paid you to do exactly one week's worth of work, are you going to come back the eighth day? Probably not. Okay? When you're you're on the clock, you're on the clock. You ever had a job where it's like, I get done at 5 o'clock. And so it's like 4.53, and you're like, nope, sorry, seven minutes left. I'm done. I'm not doing anything past that. Okay? He's saying, in three years, not three years in a day, but in exactly three years, Moab is going to be completely destroyed. This is another interim fulfillment, another intermediate fulfillment. Okay? That Moab is going to be completely done. And and that's what happened. Anybody been to Moab lately? Seen them in the news? It's their pride. You saw it was the same thing as the pride of Babylon. There's a, a verse um, in, in 1 Peter. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And we've seen God coming again and again against the proud of these nations. Even though he would have been for them a refuge, their pride prohibits them from coming in and God carries out his destruction against them. Now we're going to shift to the fourth oracle. This is the oracle concerning Damascus. Damascus, if you remember, is the capital of Syria. Not Assyria. I know it gets confusing. Syria. Syria. And if you remember last week, Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, had allied themselves with Syria. Okay? That they... They saw the threat of the Assyrians coming. They got scared like everybody else. And instead of making the Lord their refuge, they made Damascus their refuge. They made the stronger power of the Syrian nation their refuge. And they trusted in Damascus. And then they actually tried to fight against Judah. Remember that? But what this part is going to say is, even though it's an oracle concerning Damascus, because Israel has aligned themselves with Syria... This is really an oracle against Syria too, or I mean against Israel too. So because they have allied themselves, the northern kingdom and Damascus have allied themselves so closely, this is really a prophecy against both of them. So that's what we're going to see. So he says, behold, this is a prophecy against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Arawar are deserted and they will be for flocks which will lie down and none will make them afraid. And the fortress will disappear from Ephraim. Remember, Ephraim is the northern kingdom. It's another name for the northern kingdom. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus. And the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. 
And we say, well, that sounds kind of good. So the remnant of Syria is going to be like the glory of the children of Israel. Great. Well, look. In that day, verse 4, the glory of Jacob will be brought low. And the fat of his flesh will grow lean. <clears throat> and it shall be as when the reaper gathers standing grain and his arm harvests the ears. And as when one gleans the ears of grain. And the valley of Rephaim, gleanings will be left in it, as when an olive tree is beaten, and two or three berries in the top of the highest bough, four or five on the branches of a fruit tree, declares the Lord God of Israel. So that alliance that those guys had didn't work. And God, it's no, no matter how strong your partner is in crime, no matter how strong your alliance, it's no match for God, and God is going to bring them down. Okay, and he's going to say the glory of Israel is going to be uh, just leftovers. It's going to be leftover glory. It's going to be the gleanings in the field. And so it will also be for Syria. Okay, it's not going to work. They're going to be brought low. And as we know, both of these nations were conquered by the Assyrians. But then this, is, this gets cool. You remember last week we looked at, there's a, there's a kind of structure in Hebrew poetry where they do the, the first thing and then that corresponds to the last thing. And then the second thing corresponds to the second to the last thing. The third thing corresponds to the third to the last. You remember we did that? Okay. And what that structure does is it's calling attention to the thing in the very middle. Okay. It's saying like this is the, mo- this is the crown jewel of my argument is the thing that's in the very middle of this ascending and descending structure. You remember that? That's what's happening here. We've sort of seen um, God make this claim against Israel and Damascus. He talks about how bad it's going to be for them. What I want us to do is we're actually going to skip the middle thing because we don't, we don't really think the way that the Hebrews do. And so I want us to save the best for last. So we've seen it's going to go really, really bad for Israel. It's going to go really, really bad for Damascus. Seven and eight are the middle part. So let's skip that and let's go to verse nine. He says, in that day, their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel. And there will be desolation. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation. This is why all that punishment is coming. You have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. So that kind of ends this section. So it's going to be a lot of bad stuff. Why is the bad stuff? Because you have forgotten the God of your salvation. You have not remembered the rock of your refuge. You haven't put refuge in the Lord. You've put refuge in Syria. You have left. And this is going to all call attention to verses 7 and 8. Look at this. In that day, man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel, and he will not look to the altars, to the work of his hands. He will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. So in that day when all of this destruction comes, man no more is going to look at the things that his hands have made, but he's going to look to his maker. That on that day when all this bad stuff comes to Israel, Israel is going to repent. That whoever's left is going to be left without any hope in all these other idols and all these other nations and any of these other things. And they're going to turn and they're going to put their hope in the Lord. Okay, And again, we see God's grace working itself out in this destruction. That God disciplines the ones that he loves so that they would repent and turn back to him. It's meant to lead them to repentance, which will restore them. Okay? And that's what he's trying to do with them. <coughs> but then he's going to talk about, in verse, verse 12 going on, 
He's going to talk about how this destruction is going to come about. And and it's going to broaden into not just what's going on in Syria and Israel, but it's going to go bigger. And he's going to start talking about all the nations. So he says, Ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of the nations. They roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. At evening time, behold, terror. Before morning, they are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. It says, Ah, the land of whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea in vessels of papyrus on the waters. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. There's a lot more in this, but the gist is that for all the movement that's happening in the world, for the Assyrians fighting and the Syrians fighting, the Israelites fighting and the Egyptians fighting, that God says, oh, look at all the nations. Okay? And all the nations are trying to align themselves and make these, these balances and counterbalances and trying to fight against each other. And God's stepping back and he has in view, he says, look at all the way out to Cush. Cush for them was like the end of the world. And he's saying, go. They're gathering nations from the... The ends of the earth, nations tall and smooth. That probably has in view like Africans, like Ethiopians. Okay, as far as they could fathom. Okay, they're going all around. He says, all you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look. When a trumpet is blown, hear. For thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look for my dwelling. Love this. He's quietly sitting back. Even though you may not know that he's there, he's acting. Like a clear heat in sunshine, he says. Like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. You're barely perceptive of it being there, but God is watching all this, orchestrating all of this. And he says, before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with, the shoots with pruning hooks. And the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. They shall all of them be left. To the birds of prey of the mountains and the beasts of the earth. And the birds of prey will summer on them and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. Just saying that God is sovereign over all the nations. He's going to, he's going to subdue all of them. And then look at verse 7. Okay, I love this. At that time when God subdues all the nations, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth. From a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. So when he pulls back and says, all the nations, I'm in charge of all the nations, I'm going to conquer all the nations. On that day, when I conquer all of the nations, and did you hear he brings in the same language again, that these nations that are as far away as the end of the world are going to come and bring tribute to God on Mount Zion. So the ones that are left, okay, because there's going to be destruction decreed, but remember we saw in uh, chapter, can't remember, 10 I think, that it's destruction overflowing with righteousness. And God is going to bring in a remnant of nations. So it's not just the remnant of Judah, it's not just the remnant of Israel, but it's going to be a remnant of Moab, it's going to be a remnant of Cush, it's going to be a remnant of everybody that they're going to come in and they're going to bring tribute to God and worship on Mount Zion. Isn't that cool? It's a universal plan, even from the very beginning. It's the plan that we see unfolding in the church, even now. That God is bringing in people from the very ends of the earth into the people of God to bring tribute to God. So this last part, and we're almost done. We've got, we've got one chapter left. 
<clears throat> this last part really just asks the question, okay? When God has in view all of these nations coming in, what is going to be their standing? So God's got this remnant. He's going to bring in not just, he's not just going to preserve the remnant of Judah and a, and a Messiah that comes out of that remnant of Judah. But when all of the nations come in, what's going to be their standing in Israel? Are they going to be like subservient? Are they going to be uh, enemies? Are they going to be, what's, what's it going to be like? And so God answers that question by dealing with the nation of Egypt. And that's really surprising if you think about it, because Egypt was like Israel's first enemy ever on this national level. Egypt was the ones that had conquered Israel and had enslaved them for 400 years that they were brought out of in the Exodus. Like Egypt was their prototypical enemy. And God's going to talk about Egypt. Okay? And then you remember, we're going to see also he's going to talk about Assyria. So if Egypt was their first enemy, Assyria is the current enemy. But listen to what he says about that. So first, again, there's going to be uh, wrath carried out against Egypt for their pride, for their idolatry, for their hatred of God's people. And we're going to see it in three sections that God's going to sort of bring about this destruction for them socially and economically and politically. So these are the first 15 verses. And also what this is meant to be was at that time as Assyria is getting stronger and the Jews are getting kind of scared, they're going to be tempted to look at Egypt who's kind of behind them to the south. And they're going to be tempted to put their trust in Egypt. Actually, at this time, Egypt's going around and they're telling everybody, hey, we're the answer to the Assyrian problem. Put your trust in us. Align with us. And if we get a big enough alliance, we can fight off the Assyrians. So this, the first 15 verses of this are really meant, one, to, be, uh, to dissuade Judah from putting their trust in Egypt. Because Isaiah is saying, look, God's, God's going to destroy Egypt too. Like you shouldn't, you should only put your trust in God because it's not going to work out well for Egypt either. Here's what's going to happen to them. It says an oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians and they will fight each against each against each another and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom, and the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel. And they will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers, and I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master, and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord of hosts. And the waters of the sea will be dried up, and the river will be dry and parched, and its canals will be foul. And the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up, and reeds and rushes will rot away. There will be bare places by the Nile, on the brink of the Nile, and all that is sown by the Nile will be parched, and will be driven away, and will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament, and all who cast a hook in the Nile, they will languish who spread nets on the water. The workers in combed flax will be in despair, and the weavers of white cotton... Those who are the pillars of the land will be crushed, and all who work for pay will be grieved. The princes of Zoan are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. Who can say to Pharaoh, or who can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings. Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you, let they may be, that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools, and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger, and the Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion. They will make Egypt stagger in all of its deeds as a drunken man staggers in his vomit, and there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. 
And that day the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. So if there's any reason not to put your trust in Egypt, he's sort of outlined it. This is what's going to happen to them. So if you want to put your trust in a sinking ship, go for it. But this is where they're at. This is what's, what's going to be for them. Ladies, I'm sorry that they used that derogatory comment. But, but let's be real. Would you want all girls to be on the front line of your army? And he's saying that's, that's what it's going to be like for them. Okay? Not that I'm sure you guys would make excellent soldiers. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> Just saying. But there's something really interesting, and you might have fixed this. You might have missed this. It says, but fear, fear before the hand that the Lord of the hosts shakes over them. That all of this destruction brings about fear, and they understand. They fear the Lord, okay? That they, that they the, the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we just talked about how foolish all of their kings were, but they start to fear the Lord. And then look in verse 18. This is, this is a prophecy. We don't actually, verse 18, we don't really know exactly what all this is talking about. Okay, it probably meant something to Isaiah, but we, um, we just don't really know. But he says, In that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan, that is Hebrew, and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. And one of these will be called the city of destruction. And in that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. And it will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. And when they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. This is fascinating. That God says he's basically going to do for Egypt what he did for Israel when they were in Egypt. And he's going to hear them cry out for their oppressor and he's going to send them a savior. Just like he sent Moses to Israel. That God's going to treat Egypt the exact same way that he treated Israel. When they fear him and they turn to him and they're going to build altars to God. They're going to worship Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. And there's not going to be any difference between them and Israel. That Egypt will be fully included into the worship of God. And it keeps on going in verse 23. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt. And Egypt will come into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Worship who? The Lord. And in that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Now that's not saying that there's coming a time when it's just going to be those three. But he's saying that these, the prototypical enemy of Israel and the current enemy of Israel, if they can be included fully into Israel and all worship Yahweh together, who's going to be left out? Nobody. If even these people can be brought near, everyone can be brought near. Everyone gets to worship. And God is going to say of all of them, just like he said of Israel, you are my people. 
And if you were there when we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, the back half of Ephesians chapter 2, where it says, In Christ, in the gospel, he has broken down through his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles, that we are all one people that worship Christ. We are one body, one new creation in Christ. This is what that's talking about. This is all a picture of what happens when Jesus comes. And no matter who you are, that God will strike you and heal you to bring you to repentance. And everybody gets to come and worship Yahweh. Through the Savior that God sends, Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Oh my gosh. Just stop and think about that. Because none of you guys are Jewish. But we all get the same inclusion. The same promises. The same grace. And it's all a part of God's plan. There's so much good stuff in this, isn't there? Please keep reading this. Please keep thinking about this. Dive into all those little fun things. But man, we've got a good God. Amen. Somebody pray for us. Who wants to pray? Chuck, great. Lord, I thank you so much for this time that you've given us to go into your word, to learn about you and your will for us, and how you uh, love us so much, Lord, that you have a plan to bring all of us that uh, we were not originally your chosen people, but you called out to us and provided a way for us to be with you, Lord, Mm -hmm. and that uh, you provided this uh, from before time began, Lord. Thank you so much for that, and uh, give you praise and glory for that, Lord. And I I just pray that you'll help us to uh, love you more, Lord, and to uh, give back the love that you first gave us, Lord, by uh, studying your word, Lord, to grow in understanding in you, and to go out and share this with others, Lord. Mm -hmm. I just pray that you'll help us uh, this week as we uh, go into work and school, Lord, and that you'll uh, keep yourself first in our lives, Lord, Mm -hmm. no matter what we do. And I pray that you'll just help sanctify us, Lord, and forgive us of our sins. I ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.